What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. A lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome listeners to another episode of the story behind the song, the Consequence Podcast Network series where we interview the iconic artists behind the most iconic songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chadi, and each month I dive deep into conversations with your favorite musicians of all time to get insights into the creative journeys behind their most popular and lasting songs. I also ask each artist about one of their personal favorite deep cuts from their own catalog. And in the process, these living legends reveal frequently surprising, never-before-discussed details about these songs and their creative journeys, as well as candid reflections about their personal triumphs and challenges. In this episode, I speak with Grammy-winning folk legend Judy Collins, who released her first album in 1961 and whose career is now in its seventh decade. Surprisingly, Collins' best-selling recording, that went platinum and for which she won the Grammy, is not folk music at all. It is the classic show tune Send in the Clowns that was penned almost as an afterthought by legendary Broadway composer Stephen Sondheim for his musical A Little Night Music. We also discussed Judy's pick, her wistful, beautiful, original country-infused song When I Was a Girl in Colorado from her new album Spellbound. Equally surprising, Spellbound marks her first album that features only her original songs. So take a listen as we dive deep into the story behind the song with music legend Judy Collins. First of all, welcome, Judy. It's really great to have you. And like I said, you've had an amazing career, 28 albums. This will be your 29th album. I can't understand where that number comes from. 
I've made at least 50 albums. And I don't understand. I don't think, I think you have to correct it in Wikipedia. No, yeah. I've from 1961, which was my first album with Electra Records, signed up with On a Handshake with Jack Holzman. By the way, I have a podcast too, and I'm putting Jack Holzman on my podcast. And so from then on, every year or sometimes 18 months, I've made an album. If you look at my website, you can see them all, but they're not 29. They're more like 59. I love to do these wonderful interviews with people because the truth comes out. Right. That's the goal here is to break some new ground. You started with that, which is wonderful. And I also want to talk about some of the things you want to talk about. So we'll get into that toward the, you know, the end and understanding things that are on your mind beyond just the songwriting and the new album. I love it. I'm actually getting, my word is getting out to the public. Absolutely. And Judy, what is the name of your podcast? It's called Since You've Asked. Ah. It's the name of my first song that I wrote in 1967 when I had recorded Suzanne and Leonard and I were just starting out. Together. I was just listening to that song. And um, since then, I've written a lot of songs, but that's the name of my very first song. Well, so, Judy, let's talk about your musical journey. So you take us on a guided tour of your life from your childhood, where you grew up, how you went into the music, how you became a musician, and then ultimately how you broke into the business and began to record your first album in 1961. I was born in 39, and my father was already in the radio business. He had a radio show for 30 years, and he was a fabulous singer and pretty good songwriter, too. So I was always exposed to the all the Great American Songbook, of course, which we now call it the Rod Stewart Songbook, but it was all those great songs of Rogers and Hart, and they were so gorgeous and wonderful. And he always picked the very best songs from the shows. And my first performance publicly as a singer was on a stage in Butte, Montana, where he was doing a show. We were on tour at the, in the Northwest. And uh, I was three. And he said, do you want to sing a song to the nice little nice crowd here that's here? And I said, sure, what should I sing? And uh, he said, well, sing something you know. So I sang, I'll be home for Christmas. And the audience loved it. It was also July, but I had a good time. <laughs> At the age of three, you were already singing songs on stage. So it was in your DNA. In my DNA. Then, of course, I studied the piano at about age five, studied the piano, played in the, played on his radio show. I sang and played in the school shows, and I was in the choirs. I was playing serious piano. By the time I was 13, I was playing in Mozart Piano Concerto with my teacher's orchestra in Denver. And then... I also was always practicing. I had a couple of hours a day that I had to practice. And I always say it interfered with my, my social life, but I certainly made up for it in the 60s. Uh, we'll, we'll have to get into that too. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time I was 15, 16, I had turned on the radio one day and heard the Gypsy Rover and Barbara Allen. And I was just floored by both of those songs. So got my father, got me a guitar, which he rented. Because, as I always say, he was an optimist. And uh, he figured, let's come back to the piano and my great teacher, Dr. Brico. And 
I didn't. I got the guitar and I played the song from my friends, Marsha and Carol. We did a performance. They were both dancers. And so I sang the songs. We started out do doing uh, Little Red Riding Hood, the, the uh, fairy tale, and they danced the stories and I played the piano and made up the themes. So when I got the Gypsy Rover, that was our new piece of material. By the time, and I joined the Denver Folklore Society, began to learn songs and learn guitars and listen to Mart Hoffman sing uh, Pete Seeger's great song, Deportees. And that's how it all got going. When I was 19, I went to work. I got a job at a club in Boulder and turned it into a folk music club from its being a pizza parlor and a place where they had barbershop quartets and, and lots of uh, accordion players. But from then on, it was, it was the folk music center. And from then on, I made my way like all artists do when they're young. I went to every club. I sang at every club. It was word of, word of mouth. So when you first picked up the guitar that your father rented for you, yeah, you were in your mid-teens? Yep. Yeah. Well, I was probably 16. Okay. And then did, were you self-taught at the guitar? You were a prodigy oh, yeah. when it came to the oh, piano, yeah. but yeah. okay. But I was self-taught. That's what I write every song on the piano, by the way. I think I may have in the years, I think I may have written two songs on the guitar and I always play it. I used to be a really good finger picker. I, I played Travis style and had all the things that happened. Like I had uh, carpal tunnel from it and so on. And then I gave it up to play the trust string because I was seduced by the sound of Pete Seeger's singing uh, Bells of Rundy. And I got right into the scene. I came to New York in 61 to sing at this little club down here. Everybody in the business, it seems to me, was there. Ramla Jack Elliott and Dave Van Ronk. And, and it turned out Bob Dylan, whose name at that point was Robert Zimmerman, and Peter, Paul, and Mary, who were not Peter, Paul, and Mary yet. And Peter used to say to me, why don't you uh, just keep your schedule clear in case it doesn't work out with Mary? So I was right in the midst of this. And my new, my manager, who really became my manager, was Harold Levinsall, who managed the Weavers and Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Arlo Guthrie. And, you know, I'll tell you, Arlo and I have known each other for a long time, 60 years. And we had planned, before the pandemic started, we had gotten a good solid 60, 70 dates together to do in 2020. They were, they were on the books. They were being organized. And he called me in, in August. And I love this guy. I was saying it was wedding and I know his family and so on. And he said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to retire. So it was a heartbreak to me because I would have loved to be on the road with him, but I adore him. And I, we did, we did a podcast together, but we didn't get to tour to, together formally. I've sung with him in a lot of situations, including touring with him in Japan in 1966, along with Bruce Langhorne, famous, would-be famous inspiration for Tambourine Man, and also was on the first record that Carolyn Hester made with Dylan playing, there's a picture of this somewhere, Dylan was playing, Bill Lee, my bass player, father of Spike Lee, by the way. Really? Were playing together, uh, in Carolyn Hester's first album. Anyway, I love Arlo and I've known him forever. And he was one of the people who was there 
in New York. I was the headliner and he, the 13 year old was my opener. <laughs> and so, yes, you, you were very comfortable with guitar and you were beyond that. And you were a prodigy as a piano player and you sang since you were three years old, but yeah. there, are, there are many artists who are working hard at it. And it sounds like you took every chance you got, but apart from your talent, how did you break through? Like, what was your first big break in your mind? Getting up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an accumulation, as you were pointing out. Everything about what happened to me in, in those early years felt as though it was meant. It was meant that I started with Brico. I would then, a few years later, make a film about Brico, which was nominated for an Academy Award in 1975 and is also in the Library of Congress as one of their best movies of year 75, 1975. And it's good company. There are only four or five movies in that group. And one of them is Chinatown. And one of them is my movie about Tony Rico. Meeting up with her when I was 11, becoming her student and having all those years of practice, that's what I think tailored me for what I do because I had to work every day. I had to sit down, focus, turn off the phone, turn off the, you know, noise in the house and practice for two hours. It's a kind of undeniable way to learn discipline, but also all kinds of other things come with it. Beautiful music, a, an opportunity to perform that music for other people, including your family, something that you can thrive I played with a symphony when I was 13, an orchestra. And actually, when I found the guitar, found the folk music on the radio, I was practicing the Rachmaninoff Second Piano Concerto so that I could play that with her orchestra. But when I heard these songs, the Gypsy Rover and Barbara Allen, my whole life changed in a moment. And I knew, because of all those years of study, I knew what you had to do. And I knew it from my father. My father. You know, he was a great entertainer. He was a great performer. He also drank a bit, and but it didn't matter. I mean, it didn't matter how drunk he was the night before. He was up at dawn. He was singing. He was happy. He was going to work. He never missed a show. I learned that that's what you had to be able to do is always show up, always be there, always do your best, always show up, never cancel. I mean, it, when the pandemic came, I said, what? I've never, I don't cancel. You know, when I went out with Stephen Stills, I went on a tour with Stephen. Stephen and I had a romance, as you know, in 1968. We were making an album of mine called uh, Who Knows Where the Time Goes. And we had a hot affair, and he wrote Sweet Judy Blue Eyes About Me. And then for years, we remained friends. But we went out on a tour in 2017 where we did 115 shows in a year and a half together. So... These things happen to you and for you. And I think that if there's a secret at all, it's that if you have, if you're awake and you keep track of things, and fortunately, although I drank, I didn't fall down the, the happy hole anywhere, but I was lucky enough to get sober 43 years ago. So I'm also sober 43 years, which means that I've had a chance to let's say, digest a lot of the things that happened to me in the first 23 and be able to carry them to other new heights. And, and that's, that's 
partially good health and good luck and, and good DNA, among other things. Yeah, and uh, an important point, I think, for everybody out there is what you said, always show up. Um, always you know, up. put your Put yourself out there, right? Make up, like, uh, put yourself in a position to have opportunities happen to you because if you don't put yourself out there, then none of that serendipity can happen. And of course, also other things that happened. And I think I was also lucky in the sense that I was emotionally depressed. So I had to work on that. I had to figure out how to get through that, get out of that. So I went into therapy in 1963 when I moved permanently to New York, which now, which I've always been here since then. People think I live in Laurel Canyon, but I tell you, I would, yeah, I would be dead if I stayed in Laurel Canyon. No question about it. I mean, I, was, I spent ten years there. I yeah, it's it's a magical place. Uh, it's very magical, and I had <laughs> those magical moments, but I wouldn't have held out for very long. I believe me. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a, well. I want to get into some of those stories too, but um, let's take a quick break, Judy, and then we'll be right back and dig into sending the clowns. So. We'll be right back with Judy Collins on the Consequence Podcast, Story Behind the Song. Hey there, it's Kyle Meredith from Kyle Meredith With. After you check out the latest episode of my show, uh, be sure to check out some of our other great programs on the Consequence Podcast Network, including Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY, and The Opus, Consequence's original documentary podcast exploring legendary albums and their lasting legacies. So head to Consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We are back with Judy Collins, and we are now going to get into the, her story behind the song Send in the Clowns, a Stephen Sondheim song from the musical A Little Night Music, uh, the Broadway musical Little Night Music. And Judy, take us through that. Uh, it's not a song you wrote, but it's a song that obviously meant something to you. So just give us the journey of how this came to be, and then we'll dig a little bit more deeply. I have had, with many songs, including Both Sides Now, I, I chose to sing Both Sides Now because one night in the middle of the night, Al Cooper called me at three in the morning and said, I've got a surprise for you, and put Jody Mitchell on the phone with me, and she sang me Both Sides Now. So these things have happened many times. In part, I think it's my father's ability always to choose the best song from a Broadway show always chose the best. So something in me was programmed a long time, even I think before birth. And one day in New York, it was 1973 and I was in the same apartment in the same environment, but I was having a hard time because I couldn't figure out what the next album was going to be. I'd written some new songs myself, but I needed those other things to find some magical moments somewhere. Did you feel pressure to have to put out a new album at that time? Only from inside me. Okay. And I went to see David Geffen, who was then the president of Electric. Jack had sold the company and David had taken over. And I said, I'm sort of lost. I don't know what to do. He said, why don't you sing a Jimmy Webb song? I said, who's Jimmy Webb? You know, that's, that was, you, I mean, I can't, you can't know everything about everything until you do. And so I was sitting in my apartment and the phone rang. It was my friend, Nancy Bacall. Now, Nancy Bacall probably was... Leonard's best friend, Cohen's best friend. He introduced her to me as soon as I met Leonard in 66. He introduced me to Nancy. And so Nancy and I became 
fast friends. She was living here in, on the Upper West Side in New York. And she called me and she said, well, I know you're worried about things and you're not sure what's going on. She said, but I have found you a song. And I said, oh, she said, I'm sending you this album that I want you to put the needle on the cut and play it and then call me. So I picked up the cast album to Little Night Music, which came to the door and I put it on my turntable and I put the needle on the cut and I said, oh my God. And I didn't call her. I called Hal Prince because that was the name I knew that was on the album. And he answered my call. I said, oh, years later when we became friends, he said, oh yeah, I, I know you. You're the Both Sides Now girl. I'd had a hit with Both Sides Now before that. And I said, you have a wonderful song on this album. I, I, I'm astonished. He said, yes, it's good, isn't it? He said, uh, 200 people have recorded it. I said, I don't care. I have to record it. I said, who would you suggest since you know it so well? In 73, a little light music had come out in January or February of 73. This was the summer sometime. And I said, who would you suggest that I ask to do the orchestration? And he said, well, Jonathan Tunick, of course. So I called Jonathan, got him on board. He did that. And of course it became a huge hit. And over the years, I've thought, of course, a lot about why, you know, uh, this song was a throwaway song. It was an extra song for one of the singers. And it was one of the singers in Little Light Music had to have another song. And so Hal Prince said to Sondheim, go home and write, write me a song for this scene. And he went home, he wrote the song, wrote it back. And uh, Stephen said, yes. And Hal said, it'll do. Yeah, it will do. <laughs> you know, it's amazing that the, uh, there are so many times when I hear a story like that about a song that was a surprise, had surprising resonance to an audience out there, to yeah. a mass audience out there. Yeah. And so it's fascinating because that song is so iconic for it to be a, an almost, like you said, just kind of an afterthought where, okay, we need another song. So please write one. I think that Stephen, first of all, he never liked the song very much. And it did become a huge hit. And I had the hit in England and here, and it was very exciting. And it was, it got a, a, a Grammy, of course. But I don't think that he was very happy with that. I, I tell you, it moved him out of the realm where he was the most comfortable in New York theater, Broadway theater. And it brought him into the mainstream, which is not, was not what he had in mind. I know that. And I adore him and he was always amazing to me. And I think of him as a genius, but I don't think he liked that so much. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Uh, and you were saying that so many people, even at that time, a couple hundred people had recorded that song. And so what do you think, Judy, what do you think it, it is about your version that struck a chord in that kind of a way? Well, first of all, it was a jump into another genre, first of all. And because it was me and because I had had, you know, a steady increase in my fan base and because they were surprised that I would sing it. And I think there were a number of reasons, surprising, different. It's a great song, contrary to what Sondheim might have thought. 
it's a great song. It has a simplicity and a clarity and a go for the punchline. Get it, get it emotionally immediately. Start it out and put you on the moon or on the horizon or at the top of the top of the Ferris wheel, wherever you want to be. It does that at the moment it opens. So you know, obviously that's an iconic song that you brought to the, uh, an audience and Grammy winning and all of that, of course. And you had mentioned that um, part of it was that it was a deep or a different turn for you in terms of the kinds of song that you were singing. And that's another part that I hadn't mentioned enough here as just kind of an introduction is that you are best known for being a folk artist, acoustic artist, but you have a very eclectic career. And so as you sift through the discography of over 50 albums, you'll find many different sounds that are fresh and all that, which is you know good for you for doing it that way. And you had mentioned Leonard Cohen. I know you were seriously influenced by people like Woody, a great artist like Woody Guthrie, uh, Pete Seeger, but you also found wonderful talent and gave them a bigger playground to play in. Leonard Cohen is one of them, correct? Yeah. That, so met Leonard, saw the talent, and brought him into the mix. And Suzanne is one of his songs that you sang and is just stunningly beautiful. It's a beautiful song. And, you know, when he came to see me, I was friendly with his, uh, with his pal. He'd grown up with Mary Martin, this woman who went to school with him in, in uh, Canada. And she was working for Warner Brothers and she was working for, for um, Al Grossman at the same time, but she knew already my history because by the time 66 came along, I had recorded Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, lots of traditional songs, Bob Dylan, Dick Farina. I had that already, that status of taking people who had written songs that might not get recorded because Eric Anderson wrote Thirsty Boots in one of my rooms in my other apartment. And but nobody knew him, and I made the song famous. And so Mary knew that. And so when Leonard talked to her about it, I'm sure she said, go to Judy. Who was he going to go to with the songs? Was he going to go play them for Dylan? I don't think so. <laughs> it would have been a funny scene, but there you go. So I, I lucked out because I was the one who had kind of laid that groundwork. I was the only person around who was not a songwriter. At that date, I had never written a song when Leonard walked in my door. How about that? How about that? Well, and so we're going to take another quick break and then we're going to get into the second song from your new album, which is not your 29th. And even though I think the line, I think the liner notes, Judy, say that it's the 29th. So I think there needs to be a correction there. Um, but uh, we'll get into your new song, When I Was a Girl in Colorado, which gets back to your childhood. And this album, Spellbound, that will be coming out in the next few days is your first album of all original songs, right? So it's a, it's a big moment. It's a big moment. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Judy Collins to talk about the second song and her story behind that. Okay, we are back with Judy Collins, and now we're going to dig into the story behind this, her new song, When I Was a Girl in Colorado. And as I mentioned, this is Judy's first album of all original songs. So it's a big moment, a big moment. And it comes out in the next couple of days. So let's get into that. First, Judy, why did it take so long for you with all these albums that you put out to release an album that's all your originals? 
Well, I'm basically a fan. And so all my adult life, ever since I've been singing, I've been attracted by a great song. I felt this deep, deep DNA desire to sing a song that I go crazy over. After I wrote Since You've Asked, I've written songs for years, unless it's an album of all Sondheim or all Leonard Cohen or all, I've done a, a Beatles album too. So I would, I would always have a couple of my songs on my albums after 1969. And then in 2016, I started writing seriously every day poetry. By the end of the year, I had uh, 365 poems, and a number of them had been able to transmute into a lyric. From being a poem, so-called, they would transmute into being a song. Sometimes they need a little work, but once in a while I'd hit the pay dirt and the last day of the year, 2016, I wrote a song called Dreamers, which I think is probably about as good as I've gotten so far. I like a lot of the songs on, on Spellbound. And of course, I think the song of mine that's the biggest and the best is called The Blizzard, which is why The Blizzard is an extra song on this album. It's about Colorado, but it's very dramatic. And one of these days I'll get somebody to help me do a movie about, because I think it's worthy of that. And the only other person that's ever sung it is uh, John Denver, who called me and he said, I want you to come to Colorado. I want to record this song of yours, The Blizzard. And I said, I can't get out of bed. I'm not going to be able to come. And I thought that was it. But after his death, the people from Cherry Lane, his publisher, called me and said, you know, I found one of the guys who was working there said, I found this little tape of John singing your, your song, The Blizzard. And actually, they put it out later. He changed the words very slightly. He had the stranger became a woman instead of a guy. But he's the only other person I've ever heard it see it, except a few days ago, I got a, an email, a little video by a, a nine-year-old girl named Kitty standing in her bathroom. She said, Miss Collins, totally acapella. Miss Collins, I've loved this song forever. And she sang The Blizzard, top to bottom, by heart, with her little stuffed animals on the shelf behind her. <laughs> she said, I've made the big time. I, I bet. Uh, you know, that must be just so wonderful to have something like that that's unexpected. Why did you choose When I Was a Girl in Colorado of all the songs on your latest album? Tell us about why that has special resonance to you. When I recorded it in the session, and my, my wonderful team, um, we always do live recordings. So we're not coming in there with, you know, a couple of discs and a, and a couple of computers. We're coming in with five of us, six of us who are playing fresh live music. And when we did Girl from Colorado, we'd done, most of the songs were done already. And we sat down in the studio to do Girl from Colorado and the, at the end of the song, everybody sort of went crazy. And to me, it was just a lovely song, but yes, I liked it, but they just went nuts. And when I started to play it in concerts, it's, it had the same effect as, as the blizzard. When, that, when I sing the blizzard in, in an audience and I do at least a hundred shows a year, a silence will come over 
the audience. First of all, they're waiting to find out what's happening in the blizzard because there's a setup with a potentially very hot love scene going on, which doesn't really come to any kind of fruition, except in this woman or herself who gets the idea that everything is okay after her life has fallen apart over this lover who left her. I've heard that kind of silence in the audience. And I thought, well, I guess they were right. <laughs> How about that? And if you um, recorded the album in this way, including that song, you're all pros, but how many takes does this take? Well, it's always pretty much the same. We do the song live for three or four times, and then we listen. We do a few fixes. This band was Ari Hest, who sings harmony on a lot of these songs, and whom I recorded a record of our own songs together that we wrote together a few years ago. And I've toured with him a lot. So there's Ari Hess, there's my musical director, Russ Walden, drummers, usually Doug Ewell, guitar players. Jerry Leonard played on the first session in 2019. And then Tad DeBrock, who's been on the road with me and played some concerts with me, and he played on the album. It's fantastic. Doug Ewell, the drummer, and Zev um, Katz. I've worked with Zev Katz forever. And on the on the album, it tells you who these artists have worked with other than me. So we go in with a full live presentation and we just work like mad for about four takes. Then we listen and then we come in and do it again. And of course, what happens is that then my engineer cleans it up and brings us down to the essence of the track. And obviously there's an original vocal on the track as well, because I'm always usually playing, usually piano, sometimes guitar as well. And then I get to come back and do final vocals at some point. Could be months, could be a year. You know, with the, with the pandemic, we had to wait a long time before we got back into the studio to do those. It's a long process. It's not one and done. This one, like one of the lines you say, when I moved out to the desert, 40 years to lose my soul, somewhere back there in her rivers, Colorado made me whole. So your childhood was in Colorado. You mentioned the desert, <laughs> but you've been in New York City the whole time. Throughout I was your career. talking about the music business. <laughs> oh, okay. Ah, yes. Well, there you go. There you go. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a quick detour on that. What do you think of today's music business? And if you want to share them about like the Spotify controversy. Well, the deal with Spotify is that we don't make money on Spotify. The deal is with the record company. The record label has made a deal on a contract, which everybody signed with Spotify on what kind of percentages they were going to get on which artists, etc. Now, I'll tell you something else that's interesting because nobody talks about this and few people know it. I didn't know it. Most people in the business didn't know it. I once called Bette Miller to tell her that she is never paid a performance royalty on her radio performances of all the songs that she's recorded, ABC, NBC, CBS. Why? Because there's a bill that was passed in 1939, the year I was born, that says that we in this country don't have a performance royalty. When I sing Sin in the Clowns, not a penny goes to me. We're the only country in the free world 
that does not have a performer's royalty. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't know this. The owner of the song and the publisher always get paid. The same does not. Me and Mr. Sinatra have never been paid. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's the an... first person to write about this openly was Nancy Sinatra a number of years ago in the Times. It was big op ed. Now, now, and by the way, all of our societies have been going to Congress for decades to fight this. To talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of people have gone. I went to Washington and, and, we, the Grammys, were, of course, involved in this. Everybody is. Any any of our societies. I went down there with Sam, Sam Moore of Sam, Sam and Dave. Joyce was there. Joyce is Sam's wife. We finished our presentation. Conyers was on the, in the, uh, in the, he was still in Congress. After we left, Joyce said to me, you know, the last time we were here, the last time Sam and I came here, we received death threats. This is very serious business. Yeah, this, amazing. This lobby, they do not want to give up a penny. To us who put our blood and our lifeline, you know, the Texas press once started writing about this a couple of years ago and said, there's a reason Judy Collins is going to be on the road all her life. She has never been paid for her performances on terrestrial radio. Yeah. Now, when the internet went to Congress to try to get the same deal, that ABC, NBC, CBS, terrestrial radio, the old radio shows yeah. that played all of our music. Yeah. They wanted the same deal. And Congress said, no, the people own the airwaves. We can't give you that. Then uh, Sirius XM tried the same stuff with us. They aren't going to pay on any albums before 1972. Well, you know what that means for me. Yeah. No, no royalties. Yeah. So recently in... April last year, I can't remember if it's late April or May. This congressman has put a bill up in Congress. Right now, it's being voted on. It was on C-SPAN the other day. Now, I think this is very synchronistic, that the situation with Spotify and the situation with the performing, the performing arts bill, it's called the American Performance Arts Bill. Call your congressman and have them vote for it because you will be happy about your decision. And so will I. Let me ask you, um, because I don't want to take too much of your time, but I want to ask a couple of things. So you, you tour over a hundred, uh, do you do over a hundred shows a year? About Did that. You? When the pandemic came up, I was doing 120 shows a year, which is why I loved having 14 months off. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that, but how did you stay sane if that was such a part of your life for so many years? Oh, I needed it. Okay. The planet needed it. Yeah. I needed it in the worst way. I needed that time off badly, badly, badly. Because I'm only about halfway through my career. <laughs> well, it's good to keep, I love that. I, I love the fact that you've over 50 albums and it's not going to stop anytime soon when you're doing, uh, writing 360 poems, one every day or whatever that may be. What is your, and this is, I love asking this question because it's such a hard one to answer, but if you had a favorite moment throughout your career, it could be anything, something that was the most memorable for whatever reason it is, what is the most memorable yeah, moment or experience in the course of your career? Probably singing at Carnegie Hall 
when I was 22 and I was opening for Theodore Bikel. I mean, what a big deal. And my parents came from Denver and it was the, a highlight. There were many other highlights, of course, but to think about walking on that stage for the first time, a stage that I would become very accustomed to singing on, and it is a great stage. And that I must say about being a performer, there is one thing that you know counts, and that's when you're singing at Albert Hall or you're singing at Carnegie Hall, Town Hall, that you're singing in the, the Hollywood Bowl. Those experiences are extremely important. No, you can you can have your arenas, as far as I'm concerned, and they're wonderful. But to be in a hall that was structured a hundred years ago, and to know about all of the people who've been in that hall and their vibrations have gone into that wood, and you know that you're being surrounded by greatness, like the top of the list, so to speak, that's thrilling. No, that's very cool. I'm sure it is. And then one of the things that you mentioned, this will be my last question for you is that when you were a young child and you were working so hard at the piano and you were just studiously doing this over and over and you sacrificed at that time with some of the good times because you were so dedicated to what you were doing, but you're the one who said that you more than made up for it in the 60s. So, <laughs> so I'm going to hold you to, do you have a, like a, a uh, like one of the wildest moments or however you want to like anything that you want to share that was just kind of, wow, I did this. I took LSD for the first time with Michelle and John Phillips in a little tiny apartment on Avenue E in the village in New York. And I was with a man with whom I had had an affair. He's the guy that split up, split me up with my husband actually. And I had such a terrible reaction to the acid. It took me about two weeks and about three quarts of Jim Beam just to get down. I mean, I was shattered. It sounded like it might've been a romantic, extraordinary night. It was a horror show. Yeah. 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 <laughs> when you live through those, you just say, oh, good. <laughs> I can write that in my diary. Right. Right. But part of your, part of your overall journey, you know, everybody has their journeys. So listen, Judy, really enjoyed it. Um, you're, you're wonderful. And just sharing your music for, you know, all these years and putting out, it's another beautiful album. And I look forward to hearing all of it. I've listened to, like I said, a couple tracks and I, I look forward to hearing all of it. It comes out soon, everybody out there. It's Judy Collins's not 29th album, much more than that, but her latest album and the one of her first of all original songs called Spellbound. So take a look at that. And then, uh, Judy, wonderful to see you. And thanks for sharing on the story behind the song. It was fabulous to be with you. I, I loved every minute of it. And uh, I'll come back again if you'll have me. Absolutely. You'll have a new album coming out soon. So there we go. <laughs> I, I, yet another one. That was folk legend Judy Collins sharing her in-depth story behind her Grammy-winning rendition of Stephen Sondheim's Broadway classic, Send in the Clowns, and her beautiful new song, When I Was a Girl in Colorado. 
I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at P Chotti. That's P-C-S like Sam, A-T-H-Y, and at deepcutsmedia.com. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. Also make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. As always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.